What is rock and roll? It's a question I'm often asked, usually at the end of an interview, so as to glean a pithy ending to the article. While the question seems easy at first, easier than the what is punk question, one realizes it's quite complicated to answer. It's a kind of music, that's what I usually say at first, but delving deeper, beyond the music, rock and roll summarizes and represents a kind of lifestyle, an outlook, an attitude, meant to embody freedom, freedom from someone else's rules, freedom from convention. Over the years, rock and roll has been hijacked by those who adopted a Dionysian lifestyle without compunction, without conscience. Strangely, these ways have been celebrated and admired. Even though I believe in the freedom rock and roll represents, I also believe in a code it should follow, one that champions the underdog, the loner, the reject, and the outsider, not become another opportunity to vaunt the overprivileged glitterati. Another example of how rock and roll has been misconstrued is in its presentation. It's become fashionable to affect some kind of sophomoric see-through version of pretentious cool. It seems all you need to do is wear the right t-shirt, sew the right patch onto your jean jacket, wear your hair the right retro way, and you are automatically bestowed with enough rock and roll to keep up the facade. The essence of rock and roll cannot be found in the correct pair of pants or the proper denim and leather ensemble. Sometimes true rockers are the ones that refuse to play the part. It's the refusal itself that should be the tip-off. Dan Burke has been a club booker and rock promoter in Toronto, Canada for almost 20 years now. In that time, he has managed to carve a name out for himself, almost eclipsing the bands themselves in well-earned notoriety. You may not have heard the name, but if you're in a band and your band is touring the rock club circuit in North America, chances are you've run into Dan, and chances are you have your own Dan Burke story. At this point in time, his reputation precedes him. There are ample YouTube clips that showcase Dan Burke and his antics, just type his name in the search bar. There have been several attempts to film documentaries on the man, but film crews usually run out of film, time, and or battery power when placed in Dan Burke's world trying to capture it all. There have often been times when someone on the road finds out we're from Toronto and asks us if we know Dan Burke. And when we say we do, they proceed to tell us their story about Dan. You don't get to be this infamous without behaving badly. I'm sure Dan himself would say he's no angel. A lot of the time, the role of rock promoter is automatically assigned the position of heel. We all know he's garnered enough adversaries and dissenters over the years to line a parade down the street. But in the end, he wins them all back by his goddamn charm. Anyone with a shred of gumption can discern past the bellowing and the gesturing, and see Dan Burke for who he truly is, a guy who is in the trenches, night after night, trumpeting rock and roll to anyone who will listen, not just on the weekends and holidays either. Characters like Dan, fighters for the cause, is what makes Toronto music as colorful as it is. Many may look at Dan Burke as someone endlessly at odds with something or somebody, but if you take Dan out of the equation, we would all be left with a pretty dull scene. I usually stay away from regional talk and regional figures. This podcast is anything but regional. 
and neither is Dan. Before he even arrived on the rock and roll scene, he was a successful reporter working at McLean's Magazine and CBC TV's Fifth Estate as an investigative journalist. Every scene, every city, and has these personalities, rife with charisma, endlessly kicking against the pricks. You can hear all the life lived in the timber of his voice. And in the true spirit of rock and roll, he never holds back. He lays his cards out for all to see before he plays his hand, and still manages to keep it all together. A lesson a few neophyte rock and rollers could take a cue from. Nick Flanagan and I journeyed to the Velvet Underground nightclub where Dan is now working, booking bands night after night as usual. Fair warning, this episode gets dark at times, as it should be, with Dan Burke on it. Who said rock and roll was gentle? I'd like to thank Blue Mike Microphones and Skull Candy Headphones for supporting this podcast with our much-needed gear. I'd also like to thank Chino Locos Restaurants for making delicious burritos. I like them because I want to eat a fish burrito, and when I eat a fish burrito, I want it stuffed with chow mein noodles. Okay, here we go. Get ready, folks. Legendary rock and roll promoter Dan Burke is on the podcast, and it starts now. began to notice that Danko was completely nuts. He'd suddenly start making weird sounds and scary faces for no reason at all. And it, it wasn't just embarrassing, it, it was alarming. And now since I'm a devout Catholic, I asked my local parish priest about Danko's condition, and he was sure Danko was possessed by Satan. So I helped my priest perform an exorcism on Danko that very day, but it didn't work. The dude is seriously screwed, and according to my parish priest, will burn in hell for all of eternity if he doesn't get himself checked out. The Danko Jones podcast is simply superb, splendidly fine, wonderfully wild, very divine. We're at Kerouac's. the Velvet, Velvet Underground <laughs> uh, on Queen Street, Queen and Bathurst, the uh, Velvet Underground nightclub. Storied. Yes. Goth. Industrial, super goth. You could do. Any and when I think of goth, drug. I think of the our guest on the podcast today. He screams goth to me, Dan no. Burke. God, come on, Dan's not goth. <laughs> the only reason we're here is because it's a convenient location, <laughs> middle ground. Yes. Um, you offered no, us two locations: your apartment and the Velvet Underground, and no we, man's land. We chose yeah. the Velvet Underground. We chose the Velvet Underground. I think it's perfect. It's actually very studio-like in here. Super quiet yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. The first time I ever heard your name was when JC called the Shanghai Club. Club Shanghai. Club Shanghai mm -hmm. and talked to this new booker in town. And it was you. And Correct. The one thing he told me was the guy booking the Shanghai told me, can I say this? I don't know what you're going to say, so go right ahead. That you've smoked crack. Uh, correct. Like... And then you asked JC, 
who am I speaking to? <laughs> and that I don't remains... know how crack entered into the phone conversation. Yeah, no, because that, I was, that, I was that, quite businesslike in my yeah, affairs. This was yeah, in 97. In my business affairs. This was like 97, yeah. 98. Whenever you... It was 97. Never, 97. And JC, whether people know it or not, did a lot of the managing up until very recently for our band. So he would be the one calling all the clubs, talking to the promoters, the bookers, etc. And he talked to you. And that was the first time we made contact with you. And for the next few years... You were part of, you know, our our bands. You were there. You were on the radar. Universe. You were on our radar. Yeah, you were, you were part song. of our world. But you never played Shanghai. That's, oh. I, I, I must say, make that point. Yes, no, and, we never did. Um, the I finally did book here. We did one show together, and it was quite significant because, um, and it started when I saw you guys at Lee's Palace, and the drummer you had in your band at the time. I was chatting with him, and uh, I was booking the Elma Combo by then, and that drummer told me, we will never, ever play the Elma Combo, which is the worst thing you can tell me, because I instantly say, okay, well, I'm going to make that happen. Right. You know, I'm going to put this guy in his place. And um, <laughs> I'm going to emasculate this man. <laughs> oh, yeah. Competitive. I come from a com competitive environment. Smart. It's good. Boyhood. Uh, in any case, I came up with a scheme. Um, it was the end of the millennium approaching mm -hmm. 1999 and uh i came over the concept called the last rock show and uh i wanted to bring in uh some significant acts and uh on top of it was uh, on top of my list was uh danko jones so i went down to um uh the agency group had just started booking them <laughs> yes and i went to the agency group and offered three thousand dollars guarantee I hadn't seen that kind of money before, apparently. And um, back they said, well, okay, we'll get back to you. And they got back to me, and they said, 3000 guarantee, but we want the whole amount as a deposit right. in advance before confirming. And I thought, well, it's usually 50% maximum, one-third usually as deposit. Mm -hmm. So I called John Calabrese, who was a very nice guy. I knew him, and said, hey, John, come on, 100% mm -hmm. deposit? So I got 50 out of them. I felt like bringing in pennies, actually, for that. <laughs> but uh, what was really interesting at the time, it was quite a risky um, yeah. amount of money to, to put down on Danko at the time. And uh, about three minutes after delivering the deposit to the agency group, to uh, Ralph, um, Ralph James, uh, I think about three minutes, I'm exaggerating perhaps, but... Uh, their song, they were the first indie rock band to get in rotation on Q107. Right. Uh, what was the name of the song? Bounce. Bounce. Yeah. Bounce went into rotation. It, it, uh, it was already being played in uh, Saint, on a station in St. Catharines. Yeah. And then um, Q107 uh, picked it up. Yeah. That, was pretty, rotation. that was pretty big for me personally. Oh, it, was, it was great yeah. for me yeah. financially. Right, because suddenly <laughs> yeah, yeah. the idea of recouping became much more real. Well, right? it was like God was on my side. It was like this thing was meant to happen. Yeah. And it was actually a, um, uh, the Elma Combo uh, was a two-floor venue. It had yeah. two different rooms. So I, I, did, a, I did a double-decker. Yeah. And uh, the Sadies yeah. had lined downstairs. Yeah. Uh, one, um, the support acts I brought in for... Um, Danko, there was a band. I, I, it was one of the first Demon Speed, Man. Demon Speed oh, from yeah. New Jersey, Demon who Speed. I brought in because they were very cool. 
But they were also one of the first acts who ever came, I'd ever booked from America. Yeah. And I hadn't had very good shows for them previously. And I got in touch with them. But back then, too, it wasn't email or anything. It was a phone. phone I yeah. phoned yeah. them up and said, guys, I got the show for you. This is going to be what, you know, yeah. what we've been striving for. And, um, yeah, and they came up for it, too. And it was. And, yeah. Oh, that well, you know period, what? Though, it, the, it, it went viral. Your Elmo, your, the Elmo combo period. It's funny you said God on your side. I feel like that was your attitude for the the Elmo combo years. Was that you were on a divine mission to make this venue, you know, to keep the Elmo combo reputation going on, and well, the, then it became the Alamo when it got sold, you know. Yeah, the Alamo, and and then some. And then uh, on that show, though, the other band that opened was Hacksaw. Yes, exactly. Which is connected with yeah. Nick, right? Yeah, John Sharon was in Brutal Lights. I didn't even with me. remember that. I'm, well, well bo both we of you have very our, good memories. We had our very good friend, who's a really well-known worldwide international illustrator, make the posters for that show. Gary, and right it on. hangs on my wall at home. Oh, terrific! So Gary Taxali made the uh, made the show poster. It's funny that period of time, like all of the bands, when you think about it, how they were. A lot of them were ex-hardcore people ex like Jesus Lizard kind of music and suddenly they were all playing kind of rock and roll. Even well, like Hacksaw, you know, it was like ex chokehold members, ex Well Danko Jones actually and well Danko my Jones description too. always of Danko Jones has been um traditional blues satirically treated uh lyrically <laughs> thematically uh with a hardcore intensity. And that's and, and and that was probably when I came I came up with a term uh, way back, which didn't really catch, and I thought no. it should have called barrage rock, which is um, oh, barrage rock. I like barrage. That. At a you punk don't remember intensity. barrage? No, and, I never and heard that a festival. You had a fest, didn't you? Call it barrage rock fest, and you like booked like three or Not four shows. Not this particular show, but I, I had no, used you did do that. Yeah. yeah. You try to be as a promoter. You try to be yeah. inventive, playful. Would have been like uh, Gaza strippers, hookers, that kind of thing. Remember, you booked both those bands. I'm pretty I sure. I've booked a zillion bands. I know. Dan is booked. Let's let's talk about Dan for a second. Well, if he's you take booked it back about to Shanghai. It's like all those Detroit bands. Every every garage rock band that mm. you know, every fucking noise rock Detroit band. Detroit Cobras. You know. Yeah. How about yeah. White Stripes? You, White Stripes. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, too, because you remembering uh, who the the openers were on on the last rock show. Um, White Stripes played at Cool House and. Uh, Elliot Lefko, who's now in California, a great pro Toronto promoter, uh, made me uh, a co-promoter of that show, which was oh. House of Blues. And um, just because that I was involved in, in, in the first White Stripe show in, in Toronto uh, a couple of years previous to that. And uh, in the dressing room after the show, I went to uh, visit uh, Jack White and Meg and uh, I went in and introduced myself. I said, you, you not, might not remember me, I'm Dan Burke. Club Shanghai. He said, yeah, absolutely. And he uh, said, how are the high school hookers? And I looked at him and I said, I can't believe you remember that. And he remembered who the opening band was. Well, there were some yeah. bands at that time who just had these names. Like there was high school hookers. There was From also, Hamilton, right? Right. Yeah. There was also the hookers. Then there was that controversial Hamilton band, Panty Christ, which also has a funny name. And I think you booked a couple of times, maybe Panty Christ. There was, there was, sure do that. you remember back in the day, uh, my old, old band, Teen Chord Combo, played, I believe, or maybe Killer Elite, played with a band called Slut Machine from Montreal. <laughs> 
Slut machine. Yeah, oh slut God. machine. I mean, you remember these names because you're just seeing them. Well, there was there's just a band who played at the, the the horseshoe called Diarrhea Planet. Oh my God. I mean, I would want to see that. Man. <laughs> and I've I've now got to get back to an agent, right. a U.S. agent, about booking a band from Australia called Dick Diver. <laughs> I, mean, I think the, you have the, to take the, it. The, Sounds the, surfy. The name. Sounds mean, surfy on. somehow. I mean, it must mean there, it must be some sort of term in Australia, but I don't think it'll play well. Oh, he's a real uh, dick diver. Oh, look at that dick diver over there. He's a great musician. <laughs> so let's get, let's let's make it all clear here, Nick. You want me to clear were, up my Australian accent? For, you were working for Dan for a while, right? You guys yeah. have a past, <laughs> a loose partnership. Yeah, it was it was at a very dark time. Uh, the post. A lot of people have come to me when they. And been in dark times. Dark yeah. times. I, Come meant, on, I meant job. for you. <laughs> I, meant for, I meant for you. I was a dark time for me, but for various reasons. Mostly because I was like just like very young. Uh, but yeah, I was your assistant, right, at the tequila, uh, tequila lounge where you took over. But you know, which just meant I was yeah, where my and career it was during, just yeah, <laughs> exactly. It was during this very difficult time. I definitely Nick, did. Nick have anything to do with that? I didn't help. No, I, I'll, I'll let him off. I was a that. neutral element within this, and uh, we did the Leonard Cohen tribute show. Yeah, yeah. we did that. Oh, I mean, I had great shows and there. You I, we had peaches there. Oh, the issue I had, there um, was the the venue. Uh, one very interesting one was um, Brian Jonestown Massacre yeah. and the Deadly Snakes. Right, and it didn't work. Like nobody came. The two crowds. It was it was oil and water. Wow. The two crowds. The two audiences didn't blend. The bands didn't blend. I could see that personally. I could, uh, I could Ooh. totally see that because. And there was some pretty big personalities involved. Yeah, there, that's it. Is there there's... starting with Anton? Yeah, there's. Who two... I've had a long history with. Well, what's what? What is that? What's the, what's the long history? Anton. Yeah. Oh God, what the time uh, I had to get him to uh, Edge One Hundred Two Radio for. They had a show called. Uh, it was August nineteen ninety eight. Uh, when I just started at the uh, Elma Combo, and Brian Jonestown was on tour, I had them at the Elma Combo, and um, uh, those were uh, days when Anton was on heroin. Anyway, we, there was a there was a radio show called uh, Live in Toronto mm -hmm. uh, with Dave Bookman uh, had it uh, every night at Ed's One Hundred Two, and uh, that night it was. Um, Anton from Brian Jonestown was going to be the guest. Uh, it was a live live show, mm -hmm. uh, so you have to be there on time. And um, so I went to get him. The uh, they were with TVT Records at the time, and the A and R guy for TVT in Toronto, Greg Dinwiddie was his name. He just surrendered, threw in the towel, says I can't deal with these guys. And he gave me his car and said, "You take over." <laughs> I didn't have a driver's license at the time, <laughs> but. I knew how to drive. Took right. just said, fine, I'll take Intuitive. the Intuitive. And uh, anyway, so I took over because I'd, I'd worked with, I'd done their first show in uh, the previous year. I'd done Brian Jonestown's first show and got along quite well with um, Anton, two maniacs, me and him. Anyway, I go down to the hotel to pick him up. It was uh, Dundas, um, just uh, Dundas near Jarvis. And um, I go up to the room and there he is. We got about. 20, 25 minutes to get there. It was close. We're cutting it close. Anyways, and he's there uh, with his guitarist, Jeff, uh, trying to um, fix a hit of uh, heroin. 
And I know, and I thought, oh, God, you got to find a vein first. And I know if I say, hey, come on, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go, we can't be late, that he's going to have a tantrum, which might start erupt into a fist fight between me and him because I, I wouldn't want to take any shit from him. In any case, so I let it go, I stay cool, and um, I'm watching Jeff tapping his, uh, you know, tapping his, the inside of his forearm, raising a vein, putting the needle in, and I know about shooting heroin, you know. The, what I wanted to see was blood. I'm looking over at the bedside table at the clock radio as, you know, the minutes are <laughs> diminishing. Right. And all I can think is, come on, blood. Let me see some blood in that syringe so we can finish off the hit. And we got any did. Would you blood describe came, this you know? moment as being Just, you know, glamorous? <laughs> Was this a glamorous moment at all? Are drugs glamorous? I feel like drugs are not glamorous. No, it's not supposed to be glamorous. It's supposed to be dramatic because, uh, you know, bang, down in the elevator, <laughs> into the car. Right, no, I understand. 729, yeah. we are at it was S-102. Like watching a, an arm and on, a on the air. Turn. You made yeah. it. Made it. And the show was incredible, and it was, and <laughs> the band disintegrated after that show. The tour ended. For the, they flew Anton back to um, L.A. to deal with his heroin problem, but four of the uh, five band members, um, oh, the other one being him, uh, stayed in Toronto, and were hanging out in the, in the market. Davy Love uh, had a, a place called um, the Oxford Circus on Kensington Avenue then, and they were hanging out there. It was kind of like they were liking oh, Davey it to. Oh, Davy Love, uh, by the way, is a. They were liking it to guy. Apocalypse Now, going up the river and getting stuck there. <laughs> you know, right? Um, that and was the only time that uh, the only other time who I, was I had a, so I, Actually, it was Royal Trucks, who and I lost that show because the night they they started deteriorating again on on heroin, and uh, I got word uh, the night the day before the show or the day of the show that they couldn't make it into uh, Toronto because they they blamed me in the border papers but in fact the rest of their tour was canceled as well because um, um, I guess Neil had uh, uh, resurrected his uh, drug problem well when I was uh, working uh, for you one of the big things that happened was you had to go away to England and when you went away you left me in charge me and William knew in charge of uh, a big show there were so many booking agencies that I had to suddenly go through, and they were all asking for basically 100% of the deposit because at that time, that was sort of an issue. You know, like people started getting stressed out, you know? And that is that something you've encountered, right, where people kind of try to, like, go, give me all the money now, and then you talk them down, right? <coughs> but I couldn't do that. So suddenly everyone was asking for the money, and it was like I'd never booked a show before. I, I actually came out of that really admiring anyone who does so because I still don't know how to do it. And you were in England. And when you went to England, it was very mysterious. Yeah, that mysterious. was the first time I went to England. The second time, uh, I needed money. I'm not going to say what I carried. I don't really even know what I carried. But I know that I, you know, remember Goodfellas when they showed, I, you know, I want this much money. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like how much I was paid. Um, unfortunately, I just, every both times I went, because I, I you know, I'll, I'll be forthright about this. I had a very bad drug problem. At various stages in my life, um, currently I'm clean, absolutely 100% clean and sober and have been for a while. Um, but uh, at that time, I had a drug problem. And um, so I, I took this on. The second time I went to England, um, I'd, uh, 
I flew into Manchester. That was where I was sent and uh, waited for somebody to come see me from London. Um, and I had to stay a week because it was a charter flight and my, and went back. And, and uh, I found out that uh, Danko Jones was playing at the Barfly in Camden. So uh, I said, well, I should go down and see that. Pri previous to that, though, I thought, you know, I might as well make the most of while I'm here. And I phoned up uh, at ITV in Manchester, Tony Wilson right. um, of uh, Factory Records um, and Hacienda, you know, a quite legendary character for anyone who's seen 24-Hour Party People, a great movie. Uh, in any case, I phoned him up and said, hi, I'm a journalist uh, from Canada and I'd like to interview. And he said, sure, mate. And he made a set of time and all that. I wasn't a journalist at the time, but I had been uh, previously in my life. It was my first career. Mm -hmm. um, so it was half a lie. In any case, so I had a time to see him and all that. Uh, Danko Jones' show happened the night before. And I also wanted to go down and see my uh, friend, uh, Scottish Tony, who had been deported from... Um, Toronto and was living in uh, London and so I went down anyways and um, and took Scottish Tony to the show and it was a great night um, somewhat uh, Lemmy from Motorhead was there I remember and uh, I was introduced to him I'd met him once before in Toronto yeah uh, good really? guy uh, but I was loaded with all this money and a very wild guy at the time so I started drinking but Camden is a is a culturally diverse area, and I, you know, when you're a drug addict, you know, you've, you've got that, you carry that compass wherever you go with you. And I knew, I could I could zone in and knew oh, I can score here. So I was ducking out of the club and scoring uh, crack mm -hmm. While and we tin canning it. Uh, right. They were finding a little alcove or alleyway to do it, and then. Back in the club, I'd done that about twice, and uh, and shots of scotch after shots of scotch. Oh, anyway, great show. And and um, one thing I remember clearly from it was I I got up to the front of the the room uh, watching the show, and um, I remember you in, there in the middle of a song. Uh, Danko Jones steals a look down at me and winks. And that was, that was a moment of epiphany for me because I thought, that motherfucker has his shit so down. He is so well rehearsed that he is completely aware of his surroundings, of his environment. And, you know, they talk about rock and roll being, um, you know, a great show being improvisational and all that. And I realized then that, you know what? The best way to be able to improvise, to be able to cut loose yeah. in, 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 in a live set is to be well rehearsed. To yeah. have it just, you, you're so well rehearsed, it's in your DNA. Yeah. You don't even think. It's in your reflex. It just comes out of it. And oh, then, you know what? And That's that was true. a really interesting moment for yeah. me. That's what I thought. I got to see uh, I went uh, outdoor uh, festival here in Toronto. Was the it Stooges? last summer? Well, or the summer before they played. I saw Dundas the, the, the Square. The Stooges or the, 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 you right. know, the they current played, uh, lineup. What remains? Yeah, yeah. They played Dundas Square with Williamson. Oh, leading. so this is Riot Fest? Is this Riot yeah. Fest? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was one of those festivals yeah, in yeah. any case. And 
as soon as the stews is finished, I just uh, left and said, oh, the replacements, somebody said, the, the replacements are next. And I said, man, I've seen it all. Was well, Mike Watt, I'm it, with you. Was Mike Watt on base? It was game over after that. Yeah. My God. Why would you, why would God's you God's look good. Yeah. I mean, the build on him. Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, he's incredible. I We played with the Stooges uh, in Austria maybe 10 years ago. Is that right, eh? Yeah. And I was told that Iggy wasn't backstage because he was, he had the flu. Mm-hmm. So he was in a hotel room, and then they brought him like 10 minutes before the show. Mm-hmm. I saw him from backstage, and, you know, we all kept our distance. We knew he was under Sick. the weather. The show started. Holy shit, you would never know. He was jumping on amps and diving into the crowd. Right. He did crowd dives, yeah. Nobody yeah. knew in the crowd that he had the flu. We were the only <laughs> people who were told. Except the ones who later... Got it from <laughs> right, yeah. People are like, "Why am I sick?" It's because yeah. you touched Iggy Pop's forehead, dude. <laughs> they probably never wanted to get better, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. I want to take this flu for life. But I mean, I, yeah, he is—he's uh, the real king of rock and roll, I think. Yeah, I mean, to a very large extent, he's—he's he's so smart, he's so literate about music. It's—it's mm-hmm. it's like really interesting hearing interviews with him. Given, I think some people's very well spoken, of him. plainly yeah. spoken. Yeah, yeah, plainly spoken. But I believe with like a what's going on up there? Is the ceiling going to fall on Uh-oh. us? Yeah. That would make spoke for too soon. a pretty good yeah. podcast. This being a quiet place. Can we go back to you, Dan? Sure. Do you remember the time you wanted to fight me at the horseshoe? No. Yeah. <laughs> yes, man. You wanted to fight me. You Why? challenged me to a fight. No, you're kidding. I'm not making this up. You but asked it, me to. Um, I think that's the last time I talked to you. You're <laughs> no, come on. <laughs> I'm fucking not joking, man. You. Um, I must you have been were, really drunk. Was I really drunk? You didn't seem to be. Uh, you, were you in a boxer phase? I feel like you've had a couple no. of. Oh, did you have a boxer sparring? Phase? I feel yeah. like you, was it like a sparring request? Or I've an seen you, really disturbing. I've, I've seen you get into a fight with somebody. Yeah, I lost that at one the bad. at the Elmo. Yeah, that guy. Um, I was trying to get more beer tickets. Right. It was with the Electric Brains. If you remember that band, no, I got in a fight with a bar. Bartender. It was a part of the staff. You got in, you got into a fight with one of the staff at the Elmo. Me, a couple of friends, and the Electric Brains, which were made up was an all star band of Montreal bands. Right. We all watched you fight this guy. Yeah. And and you got some good shots in. I won't say yeah, you didn't. but uh, no, that but guy was very very tough. That tough. guy looked like I, a UFC I, fighter. So anybody oh, was yeah. lost. Yeah. Um, that's not saying no, anything no, against if, you. If, if, if I'm fighting a, a a real fighter, I don't got much of a chance. With normal people, I'm you're you pretty. Know, you, you can hold your. You yeah. got some moves. But then you called me the next morning. Do you remember that? Uh, and asked, what I say? You said I got some good shots in there, right? That <laughs> 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 was. You woke me up. Oh, asking. God. Anyways, you did challenge me to a fight. No, which I, was the I, last I, time I, I saw you. It was you were holding you were you were you were gonna have a John Lennon tribute night. God, that's centuries ago. But that was the last time we talked, Dan. I'm never really? downtown. I don't know the last time I saw you. Jeez, this feels aggressive. You I really was out of my mind for a lot of my life. No, here's hmm. the here's the story I that never I tell. Thought, I, never, I, never, I was never inclined that way. Towards well, here's the story I, I tell. Really no, no, but you, you said I'm doing this John Lennon tribute night. I go, oh, that's cool. He goes, and then you say, you want to take part in it. I go, no, it's okay, I, I can't. And then you go, then your face just turned, <laughs> and you're like, you know, I can't remember what you said, but I said, Dan, just 
take it outside. You started yelling at me. Not yelling at me loudly where people can hear, but you started to. Really? Yeah, you started to try and put me in my place. And I said, Dan, just take it outside. And then you said, yeah, let's take it outside. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, no. I don't mean fight outside. I mean, just like take it out. Like take all your. Oh, geez, well, I'm ashamed of that. Uh, well, it, I it's made for a good story. I've, I've told that story to a few people. Not to a lot of people, but that is the last time I talked to you. That's I don't at the on. horseshoe. Yeah. Imagine you were you that, were back uh, at that the, was that you were still mad about it. Ago. Imagine you came back on I've right seen now. Seen and you're like, then, haven't I? No. Wow. <laughs> but but I, I didn't take it to heart. I didn't hold it against you. God. For all these years, I haven't said Dan. Fuck Dan. I've just gone. Well, that's you know that's Dan. He very passionate about. Whatever it is that he's involved in, there's a lot of people with different stories about you. And, but <laughs> during, that's, and that's, most, a lot of. But them that's the thing about angry. you, Dan, is you have this larger-than-life reputation that the story of you wanting to fight me at the horseshoe is just another, another, another story about Dan Burke. It doesn't I, take away from you. It only adds. But I understand to this, that being hard, though, too. To this reputation you've got. I understand, which I think I've, you've able, to, you've been able to work in your favor. Yeah, you want to be a. Yeah, I've got a lot of press. I've had a lot of stories written about me. Um, yeah. But you know, I'm an, I'm. It took me a long time, but I've but I've grown up, and uh, I don't. When when I'm angry now, I don't express it. Uh, say I'm dealing with bands and and a bands and they're pissing me off, and I just feel like telling them, "Listen, man, fuck off." I don't. Yeah. I maintain a polite uh, communication, and it usually works out really well. And I wish I would have uh, been able to mature a lot longer in my life. I don't know if it's maturing. Listen, I, when we started in this band, I could tell you I'm pr I was pro band, and I still am. I'm pro band. If anybody's fucking trying to rip off a band, I always think the band is the one who gets ends up holding the bag, who gets villainized for stuff that's out of their hands. Whether it's a promoter, a booker, record label, manager, et cetera, I've always been pro-band. But being in this business now for almost two decades, I can honestly tell you that there is a lot of bands, maybe the majority of bands, are made up of idiots. <laughs> and Correct. you have to, and, and the, the level you're dealing with, you're not dealing with <clears throat> necessarily seasoned bands. You're dealing with bands that have been out of the gate for one to five years, 10 years, who still have to get their egos in check. Or months sometimes even, months you know, like even. for an opener They have thing. weird views of how they're perceived as bands. They think of themselves larger than they really are and their ego precedes them. And you got to fucking deal with that. Or it's like running a kindergarten. Yeah, or dealing with people Definitely. on the way down sometimes too, you know, who might maybe well, have uh, moments, you know? the first you know? thing is, just because you're a band, mm -hmm doesn't mean you're an artist. Or just because you think you're an artist doesn't mean you are. you're an artist. Uh, an artist is like, I, I think an artist is, you have to be called an artist. You can't be self-proclaimed. No, yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, first of all. And being an artist is like being a, a, an engineer or a doctor or something. You've got to run this gauntlet, go through this course of... of of life, of of trial and error, and 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 challenge and failure, 
and getting up off the canvas and and working wearing, on wearing stuff and reworking it and, skin, and, you know? and just and when I go and I mean that's why I'm so disturbed that I would have challenged you to fight. Oh, don't because, hold it. No, because, I, I, no, I don't hold it. Because again. when I let's go back to that when that moment he winks at me off the stage and I'm like, oh wow, Epiphany. that's a fucking artist. And artist art is seventy eight percent craft. I will say this. I will say this. You the the whole John Lennon tribute night thing at the Horseshoe happened before the Barfly show. But okay. we didn't talk that night. Oh, okay. So I will say that. I right. will give you that. And, like, we were fine. I was fine uh, with you mm. a day after that happened. I, You know, okay. I, I take it with a grain of salt. I know you, and there's just no way that I would, I would hold it against you. It's just, I, like I said, I know you're very passionate. Mm -hmm. And, you, you know, when it comes to being very passionate, shit happens. Can we talk for a, a minute? Can we talk for a minute years. about the time when I was like at, living at the Drake Hotel and you? I feel like you texted me or called me and you were like, "I'm here. I'm with Tom Sizemore and Trev DiMatteo. We're partying, scoring him heroin." Wow, for Sizemore, both. Yeah, of them. he came to <laughs> another one of my um, uh, 2004 summer of 2004 June. 2004, uh, I had a huge show. It was my first NEXT versus NXNA. For two years, 2004 and 2005, I ran against North by Northeast. Um, <laughs> and it changed the festival. Mm -hmm. Because the festival director at the time, Andy McLean, I had a show which I wanted to place in the festival. And I went to meet him. And at that time, I didn't really have a venue. And they didn't like me already because previously when I did have the Elma Combo and they were mm -hmm. running, had festival dates with me there, I would stop them at the door and say, fuck that. That lineup is bullshit. <laughs> it's like, it's, it, it, it's like a, a thoughtless stew of bands. Right. And I made the makeup. I got the Team Craig Combo. On, yeah, on, and it was a good, for, that was a really good show. Bands. Yeah. Some of theirs, some of mine, and put together mm -hmm. uh, purposeful shows. Yeah. In any case, 2004, I present this show to him. DFA 79 is the headliner. And he comes and meets me begrudgingly. I can tell from the, meeting, the beginning of the meeting. It's in the cafe at Now Magazine where North by Northeast offices are. Mm -hmm. And he sits down, gives me a dirty look, and I present the case to him. And he just looks at me and he says, about the show? Make it disappear. And he gets, and he gets up. And I look at Adam and I go, just for that? I'm going to do it every fucking year. <laughs> and sure enough, the following year, so I had this show, DFA 79, who the hell else was on it? Controller Controller, they were buzz bands at the time, but DFA 79, I mean, amazing they weren't playing like a festival. when I had the last rock show, in Degas, DFA 79 was on the tarmac, and it took off. Right. And that show was one of the biggest, um, Shows of NXNE Weekend. It was well written about. Many reviews says, what? but the best show of the festival wasn't mm -hmm. even the festival. And the following year, I did two nights. I flew <laughs> in the Grigri from Oakland. Right. 
That one cost me. That one took about a half a year for me to pay off because right. it was expensive and it, it, it drew about 150 people, but which was a decent room. It was a decent show, but yeah. not financially. The following night, I had Wolf Parade again. Same thing. As soon as I got the show, the band just starts mm-hmm. skyrocketing, and that show was fucking sold out. Mm-hmm. And then Michael Hall, the publisher of Now Magazine, came to me. Uh, the following, the fall, a few months later, and said, "Don't go against us anymore." And I said, "No problem, I'll work with you." Because I thought, "Well, the guy, you know, I'm, I don't want to do my own festival, but yeah. I was trying to make a point yeah. that there's a better way to do this. There's some cool bands out there who don't apply, who who feel alienated by you and all that, and and the." I did the NXNE was a thoughtless stew of booking. Yeah. You weren't going after, yeah, what's going to make this a great festival mm-hmm. artistically, you know? And Which I thought is... that, that Hall was really cool by acknowledging, hey, you made your point, work with us. And yeah, no problem, let's do it. And ever since, we've done this great thing, you know, because I invented at the same time in 2004, working with CMW, I invented something called the triple header, where you take one band and put them. All three nights at the same club. So you're headlining all three nights. Yeah. And I did it first with the Zoo Bombs from Japan. You did it with King Kong too, right? I did it. And, and the first NXNE one, I got Holland and North by Northeast to fly in King Kong and the Shrines from Berlin. There was 10 of them, so that's a big <laughs> fucking airfare. Okay? And then they agreed to it. I got him a show in Montreal with Dan Seligman of Paul Montreal. He came in with me. Uh... And I uh, got them show in London, Tony called the other, all that, you know, Brown and all, all my guys. And we fixed up this thing for King Kong and the Shrines. The Wednesday of the festival week, Now Magazine comes out, and there's Arish, King Kong, on the cover yeah. of Now Magazine. And Anderson, he spent all his money on them. I had a triple header, and all I could think was, Fuck, they better be good. <laughs> I'd never were, seen them play. They were they good. Were, they were good. Them, but, I mean, but at the time, I hadn't seen them play. Yeah. At the time, it was like they a legend. had like the space shits yeah. from which they came. They had this, you know, small pockets of fans throughout grass rock. You Seven know, inches and, and, fans and people throughout were North like, America, but not a big Berlin. audience yet. They hadn't been to North America. Mm-hmm. So I'm there thinking, oh. God, because a triple header can backfire. If that band, the first night, is just good, good, good doesn't cut it. They better be fucking great. Because you need the people who are at that first night to walk out in the street and say, fuck, I'm going back tomorrow night. And they tell all their friends, you got to see this band. That's the only way the triple header works. So it's always, um, it's always a little tense, <laughs> the triple header. Here's the question. Why did you get into journalism initially? Eh? Good question. <laughs> eh? On my 17th birthday, I started working as a copy boy at the Montreal Gazette. Right. And uh, I finished high school at 16, grade 11 in Montreal. Uh, I'm born in December, so I started at five years old. Mm-hmm. And um, so I got out earlier than most. And I was not a... I wasn't the happiest kid. I was, I was shy and... But I, you know, had a big, I, I don't know, whatever, a lot of us are freaks in our field. And uh, anyway, so I just didn't want to go back to school. I wanted to mm. be an adult, be a man. And, uh, and I started working um, and first as a busboy. 
And then I got this job because uh, my, my dad worked at it. My dad was a, a sports columnist at that time, mm -hmm. quite a well-known one at the Montreal Gazette. And uh, he got me an interview, and I got the job as a coffee boy. $75 a week was my starting salary. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went to work and very quickly noticed that, uh, wow, I thought reporters would be, you know, sort of certain Thai guys and that. Right. But it was, a, you know, some really nice-looking women and uh, young uh Hippie-ish uh, guys, you know, the guys coming in. They came in at two o'clock in the afternoon or later mm -hmm. uh, to write their stories. Oh, this looks like a great fucking job. You yeah, know, great, kind of feel. Babes, and that, that's, tardiness, uh, and 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 they, and they did a lot of drinking and, and drinking, uh, and uh, it seemed to have an interesting lifestyle. So yeah. I was just completely. Uh, Attracted to the lifestyle, and I so I went on to become a, a journalist, um, not a music journalist, a real one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A real one. And was that was that part of? I mean, was that not only a real one, an investigative one? Well, so whenever a music journalist from the Montreal, me off, I I, I, I still have. <laughs> oh yeah, I can I can imagine from that the Montreal actually, Gazette. Where did you go? From the Montreal as a copy boy, I quit at the age of eighteen and a half because I thought I was too old for the job. These days, a copy boy. In what's left of newsrooms, because they've greatly diminished. Uh, Thirty-seven years in old. In the age of the internet, <laughs> um, but they have something called editorial assistants. Yeah, they're yeah. like in their thirties or forties yeah. or whatever, and that's what that's the equivalent of a copy boy today. Uh, so I quit at eighteen and a half because I thought I was too old, and uh, I deal with fucking twenty-five-year-olds today who are just, and I'm like, wow. The level of maturity. It's crazy, man. Um, we're, we're only accomplishing things in our 30s at all, if we're lucky at this point. It's like everything well, the world is bumped has changed. up. The prosperity has yeah. really softened the, the, the softened our society. Yeah. And I mean, uh, the, the, the generation before me was, was tougher than my generation. Yeah. I'm 57 years old, by the way, uh, and um, grew up in the 60s. Uh, and... Um, yeah, we've reached a point of presence. But I think this is the breaking point. I think this is where Rome, you know... Uh, Crumble? Nero fiddles. Or, yeah, I do. I just feel it's, it's gotten so and, soft. But what does that represent? And, and selfish. You've come to this conclusion by dealing with bands? <laughs> yeah, it seems like that would be a big, <laughs> yeah. a well, big you, you reason. You know, the, 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 the prophecy like of the Industrial Revolution was man would be liberated people. from his labors. And um, uh, who was it? Uh, Rousseau or... One of the French guys back then. Uh, I remember uh, poet in the morning, hot carrier in the morning, whatever hot carrier is, it's a bricklayer kind of thing. A hot carrier in the morning, poet in the afternoon. And fuck, we've seen that happen because yeah. everybody's in a band now pursuing something with a bit of a dream to varying degrees. But they have another job. They they have to have another job mm -hmm. uh, because of the, there are just too many. Well, you know, just because you're a band doesn't mean you get paid. But that's also and very been, few do. But that's There's also very been, few self financially self sufficient bands, mm -hmm. given the huge number proportion of bands. And it's so easy to be a band. Do you still like music? <laughs> Good question. You know what? When I got to turn a day around. When I got, I got pumped up. When I feel, when I've taken a few shots, figuratively speaking, I'll put on a soundtrack of our lives, Sister Surround. Or I'll put on um, 
Uh, I got a greatest hits. Uh, I don't usually like greatest hits, but uh, but Jesus and Mary Chain. That's a twenty one singles. Mm-hmm. I think it's called. That's a that's a beauty. Or uh, Danko Jones. Danko Jones. <laughs> I'll quote: "Love always saves the day." You still believe that? I do. So do I, bro. Take care of me